Hey, if you need new sunglasses, if you would like to get new sunglasses, get yourself some Shady Rays sunglasses and take advantage of a tremendous offer being extended to listeners of the Al Galdi podcast. Go to ShadyRays.com and use this code ALGALDI for 50% off two or more pairs of polarized sunglasses. Yeah, 50% off two or more pairs of polarized sunglasses. Shady Rays offers the most insane protection in all of eyewear. Every pair of sunglasses is backed by lost and broken replacements, meaning that if you lose or break your pair of sunglasses, even on day one, Shady Rays will send you a brand new pair of sunglasses. No questions asked. Wear your Shady Rays with confidence because Shady Rays has your back long after your purchase. Go to ShadyRays.com and use the code ALGALDI for 50% off two or more pairs of polarized sunglasses. That's ShadyRays.com and use the code ALGALDI for 50% off two or more pairs of polarized sunglasses. Shady Rays, look good and feel good. Episode 556 of the Al Galdi Podcast. It is Monday, April 24th, 2023. It is NFL Draft Week 2023. It is a week of reports and rumors and speculation and smokescreens and lying. Oh, the lying. Uh, And then we do get the 2023 NFL Draft, beginning on Thursday night with the first round, in which our commanders have the number 16 overall pick. Will this week be a quiet week in terms of the sale of the commanders? Or will this week be a week in which we, with our commanders, have both major sale news and the 2023 draft. This week has the potential to be a monster news week with our football team. Hello and welcome to this Monday installment of the Al Galdi podcast. Coming up next segment, a good guest with whom we will preview the Commander's 2023 draft, John Macri of Pro Football Focus. He's going to take us through his evaluations of prospects at key positions for the Commander's via PFF's stable metrics. Uh, Those metrics that are most telling for draft prospects and best predict how prospects will be as players at the NFL level. Uh, You will hear John talk quarterbacks, tight ends, offensive linemen, corners, and more. And John will explain why commander's interior defensive lineman Deron Payne is a regression candidate for the 2023 season, although that does come uh, with a key side note. But John Macri of Pro Football Focus is with us next segment. Uh, Also, I will discuss the suspension of a commander's player, edge defender Shaka Tony. The NFL has suspended him indefinitely, which means for a minimum of the entirety of the 2023 season. Uh, This for betting on NFL games in the 2022 season. A shocker for Shaka. I'll have some thoughts on that. Uh, And I will talk about what were victorious weekends for the Nationals and the Orioles. The Nats and O's won their series over the weekend. The Nats won two or three games at the Minnesota Twins. The O's authored a three-game sweep of the Detroit Tigers at Oriole Park at Camden Yards. The Orioles' schedule has softened a bit, but the O's are taking advantage, and they now have the longest current winning streak in the American League. Six consecutive wins. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Tweet from Maine 12 about my take on Tennessee quarterback Hendon Hooker, uh, that the commanders in the 2023 NFL draft should take Hendon Hooker if they really like him because the team remains in need of a franchise quarterback, writes Main 12. Al, what would happen is the quarterback being strapped to the next staff without anyone knowing if he's going to be good. The Ron Rivera regime has missed its window to develop a prospect quarterback. I want no part of that this year. The staff has confidence in Sam Howell. Let's ride with him and see what happens. Uh, thank you for that. Main 12, 
Uh, I hear you. I get where you're coming from. But as a Commanders fan, I do want what is best for the team. And what is best for the team is that it takes Hendon Hooker if it really, truly believes that he can be a franchise quarterback. I'm not letting Ron Rivera's iffy status as Commanders head coach beyond this season causing me to feel fine about the team passing on drafting a potential franchise quarterback. And if Hendon Hooker is that good, if he is that guy, then it won't matter who the head coach of the team is. Now, I have doubts about whether Hooker is that good. There are a lot of questions with Hooker as an NFL prospect. My point with the Hendon Hooker take isn't so much about Hooker specifically as it is about the general philosophy of if you are a franchise quarterback needy team as the commanders are and you have a chance to draft a quarterback who you think realistically could be a franchise quarterback, you take the guy, regardless if taking the guy like disrupts your nice little plan <laughs> for the upcoming season or doesn't fit in perfectly with the way that things currently are with your team. But as I've been saying for months, I am excited for Sam Howell. And it may well be that Sam Howell is a better NFL prospect than Hendon Hooker is. Uh, I have received several emails regarding the structure of the Josh Harris group, should it buy the Commanders, as it does continue to appear as if the Harris group will be buying the Commanders. Email from Kevin in Connecticut, writes Kevin, Hi Al, love the podcast, I've been a faithful listener since episode one. Really appreciate all your hard work. Thank you, Kevin. Continues, Kevin. You recently mentioned the report regarding the new Commanders ownership breakdown with Josh Harris at 30% and 17 other owners making up the remaining percentage. I was wondering if you could help explain how this impacts the daily operation of the team. For instance, can the minority owners get together and outvote Mr. Harris regarding an issue with which the minority owners do not agree with Harris? Does this make the running of the team more democratic? Uh, thank you for the email, Kevin. Uh, email from Mike writes, Mike, uh, thank you as always for your great daily podcast. I really enjoy the insights that you and your guests bring and try not to miss an episode. Uh, thank you, Mike. Continues, Mike. Uh, I do have a question. On episode 553, you discussed the reported percentage breakdown of the Josh Harris ownership group. It sounds like Harris would own 30% of the team, Mitchell Rails 12%, and Magic Johnson 4%. That leaves 54% to be owned by a number of additional limited partners. So assuming 15 additional limited partners, each would hold an average of about 3% of the team. On this note, do you happen to know much about the specific roles of managing and limited partners as it pertains to this particular ownership group? It might be helpful to get some clarification on two areas. First, it is my understanding that managing partners typically make the business decisions of companies while the limited partners are simply investing their money with no authority to make decisions. Is that true in this case? I am suspecting so. Otherwise, Harris himself could be outvoted in key business decisions, and I can't see why he would set it up this way. I've heard a lot of anxiety online that Harris doesn't own 51%, but I can't believe that Harris hasn't thought about this. Second, when it comes to the ownership group funding new initiatives, such as the purchase of a new stadium or practice facility, are these costs proportionately borne by all partners based upon their percent ownership stake? Or is it the managing partner alone who bears the weight of this financial commitment? Uh, I know this may seem like in the weeds business stuff, but I can easily see where this business structure could be pretty important regarding Harris's ability to do things like fund new initiatives or make decisions quickly and efficiently. Any insights that you have, I'm sure would be appreciated. Uh, thank you for the email, Mike. All right. So assistant managing editor, Mike Ozanian of Forbes Media, he last Tuesday evening came out with a piece with a detailed breakdown of the Josh Harris group's bid for the commanders. Ozanian reported that Harris would own 30% of the commanders and be the managing partner, and that there would be 17 limited partners, including Washington, D.C. area billionaire Mitchell Rails at 12% and NBA legend Magic Johnson at 4%. The title of managing partner for Josh Harris is key. Harris's official title with the two other major North American pro sports teams that he owns, the Philadelphia 76ers and New Jersey Devils, is managing partner. Uh, you almost always hear or read about a team's owner, but the truth is that owners in sports have different titles. Uh, Dan Snyder's official title as commander's owner is co-owner and co-CEO. Uh, his wife, Tanya, also 
has the title of co-owner and co-CEO. But with, say, the Nationals, uh, who are owned by a large group led by the Lerner family, uh, the official title of the man in charge, Mark Lerner, is managing principal owner. Josh Harris, in being the managing partner of the Commanders, would not be the majority owner of the Commanders, but he would be the controlling owner. He would be, as the title suggests, the partner in the ownership group who manages, i.e., has final say on the team. And when it comes to paying for something like a new stadium, uh, something like that, I would think, is worked into the language of Harris's agreements with his minority partners. By the way, Josh Harris owning 30% of the commanders is key and isn't just some random number. 30% is the minimum amount that a lead owner of an NFL team must own of that team. Uh, I read to you from a piece by sports business insider Daniel Kaplan of The Athletic from May 2022. Quote, until the late 1980s, the NFL required the lead owner to have 51% of the club at a time when teams were worth tens of millions of dollars. By the end of the 80s, as prices crept up, the league dropped the minimum to 30%. End quote. In case you're curious, when Dan Snyder in April 2021 finalized his buying out of his three disgruntled minority partners, Robert Rothman, Dwight Shaw, and Fred Smith, the breakdown of team ownership became the following. Dan Snyder owning 80.958% of the team. Uh, Michelle Snyder, Dan's sister, owning 12.552% of the team. And Arlette Snyder, Dan's mother, owning 6.489% of the team. But Arlette Snyder passed away in July 2021. You know, I have not heard or read anything about what became of Arlette Snyder's ownership stake in the team uh, or about what the deal is with Michelle Snyder in this sale of the team. But every indication is that the Josh Harris group would be buying 100% of the commanders and not say 87.448% of the team with Michelle Snyder still owning 12.552% of the team. You know, I over the weekend read something interesting about Josh Harris. He is a runner or at least was a runner, but he has run the New York City Marathon. Uh, I'm not sure what's more difficult, buying the commanders from Dan Snyder or running the New York City Marathon. But I do know this. If you have a case, you should contact Paulson and Nace. Always know that the law firm of Paulson and Nace is ready to fight for you. Paulson and Nace is a Washington, D.C.-based family law firm that handles medical malpractice, personal injury, birth injury, legal malpractice, and consumer protection cases, offering aggressive advocacy for victims in Washington, D.C. and West Virginia. Call 202-902-7611. And when you call, make sure that you tell Paulson and Nace that Al Galdi sent you. Paulson and Nace provides a passionate advocacy on behalf of injury victims designed to help them and their families move forward after the most difficult of times. And Paulson and Nace is excellent at what it does. Paulson and Nace has recovered millions of dollars for the sick and injured. How about this? Two verdicts against Merrill Dow totaling $132 million. Yes, Paulson and Nace has taken on Big Pharma and won. Uh, Clifton versus Georgetown University Hospital, a $50 million verdict for a young mother injured during childbirth. Uh, just last July, Bradley versus the United States of America. Paulson and Nace won a case for which the United States government must pay nearly $1.8 million. So this to a former American University field hockey player because of a military doctor's failure to diagnose and treat the student for a 2011 concussion that left her with permanent symptoms. Paulson and Nace took on the U.S. government and won. If you have a case, contact Paulson and Nace. If you feel that you've been wronged, if you think that you've been wronged but aren't sure, call Paulson and Nace and schedule a no-obligation appointment. Call 202-902-7611. That's 202-902-7611. And when you call, tell Paulson and Nace that Al Galdi sent you. You can also visit paulsonandnace.com. That's paulsonandnace.com. And don't forget to tell Paulson and Nace that Al Galdi sent you. Paulson and Nace, when tragedy happens, let the family of Paulson and Nace take care of your family.
Well, a big help is if you subscribe to, rate, and review this podcast. You can subscribe to the podcast via most platforms, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify. Uh, A subscription to the podcast costs you nothing. Make sure that you never miss an episode. Uh, You on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify can rate the podcast. Five-star ratings are very much appreciated. And you on Apple Podcasts can write a review saying that you like the podcast. The review can be just a sentence or two. Can't be more, but doesn't have to be. But uh, thank you very much for subscribing, rating, and reviewing the first round of the 2023 NFL Draft is this Thursday night. And then this coming weekend is NFL Draft weekend with the second and third rounds on Friday night and the fourth, fifth, sixth, and seventh rounds on Saturday. Uh, The Commanders have the number 16 overall pick in the 2023 draft. A lot of ways in which the team could go with that pick. And so I'm very pleased to welcome to the Al Galdi podcast right now, John Macri of Pro Football Focus. He is a PFF fantasy football analyst. He also is the host of the Big Nickel IDP podcast. IDP stands for individual defensive players. Uh, John has a great command, no pun intended, (laughs) on PFF stats. He does a really good job of breaking down players, and so it's good to have him on the podcast to talk about what the commanders just may do in the 2023 draft. You can follow John on Twitter at PFF underscore Macri, which is spelled M-A-C-R-I. Hey, John, how are you? I am very good, Al. I'm especially happy for the Washington football fan base. Uh, congratulations on the sale of the team. Um, I hope it's uh, you know all positive things ahead. But yeah, very happy to be there. I appreciate you having me on. We could use some positive things, uh, no doubt. Uh, one of the reasons that I wanted to have you on the podcast is that I really like how you evaluate NFL draft prospects. You make use of what are known as stable metrics from Pro Football Focus. Explain, if you would, what exactly stable metrics are and your thought process and having them as a big part of what you do. Yeah, so the staple metrics, essentially, um, the way we we view those, are those are the things um, that a player performs uh, well in and they translate from game to game, year to year, more often than not. There's obviously outliers and things like that, and and there's going to be some variance, but um, you know, looking at all the the statistics and everything like that, uh, I just wanted to try to gather um, a series of of stable metrics for positional groups in this year's NFL draft and try to see you know compare the the positions basically on how they they stack up. And the way I did it this year was meant more for kind of fantasy managers to get to know some of the players of interest in this class from like an analytics standpoint. So I kept it very fairly simplified, but. Next year, I do plan on adding a little more to the model to better kind of weight expected draft capital, level of competition, things like that. But basic idea of it when it comes to quarterbacks specifically is to isolate their performance to only the things that they control, basically, and within structure. So that's why it's a heavy emphasis on PFF grades and things like how they perform in a clean pocket, straight dropbacks, uh, reducing negatively graded plays, things like that. Um, It just provides a cleaner look at the quarterback's level of play uh, without all the added noise of things that are out of their control or what happens once the ball gets to their receiver kind of thing. Well, while we are on quarterback, uh, the commanders, they are positioning Sam Howell to be their QB1 for the 2023 season, but at least according to head coach Ron Rivera, Sam will be competing with Jacoby Brissett for the starting quarterback job. It does seem unlikely that the team will take a quarterback in the first round of the 2023 draft, but of course, you never know. And of course, what the team does do and what the team should do can be two different things. To whatever extent it's possible that both Kentucky quarterback Will Levis and Tennessee quarterback Hendon Hooker are available to the commanders with their number 16 overall pick. What do the stable pro football focus metrics tell us about each guy? So both guys project to still be, you know, kind of uh, developmental projects in, in the NFL. Uh, Hooker actually performed better when it came to the stable metrics uh, over Levis. Just he did a lot more uh, in structure. And, you know, as much as that Tennessee offense made it a little easier for him, uh, you know, with a ton of slants and wide receiver screens, goal balls down the sideline, you know, he could only do what was asked of him and his accuracy accuracy especially on those deep balls uh, stood out amongst this class he, he actually ranked second in accurate throws 20 plus yards downfield uh, behind only cj stroud and, and he scored well in those key stable metrics too with some you know standout grades including a, a 92.5 pass passing grade since 2021 on throws at or beyond the sticks and and a 91.5 passing grade since 2021 uh from a clean pocket so 
you know, for, for Will Levis, he didn't perform as well uh, within structure, but obviously, you know, for him, it's all about the arm talent and, and the potential there too, you know, as a developmental player, he's, you know, often referenced as, you know, a Josh Allen type who has the arm strength and the tools, um, but isn't quite there uh, technique wise and refinement wise yet, but um, could potentially get there. So Hendon Hooker actually performed a little bit better. And uh, there's, there's quite a bit to like about him. Obviously the torn ACL and things like that kind of factor in as well. But um, from a stable metric standpoint, he actually performed very well in the, in the Tennessee system. I'm not a believer in an NFL team drafting for need, but the commanders do have a need at tight end. Uh, you have analyzed the tight end class for this 2023 draft. Uh, what stands out to you about the class? Yeah, so I really ended up loving this tight end class. I, I know, you know, I'm not alone in, in thinking that, but there's a lot of depth uh, of the class. And I think that kind of works to, to the Washington commander's advantage as well. If they did want to address the position, they don't necessarily have to attack it first uh, in the first round because there is there is significant depth there. Um, you know, guys like Darnell Washington, for example, who probably has the highest upside of the entire tight end class just being a physical spe- specimen and special athlete um, dominated as a run blocker in those uh, staple metrics. And guys like Kincaid and Mayer, obviously, uh, even Luke Musgrave, um, who could potentially be like a day two pick uh, scored really well in the receiving metrics um, just in the 2022, even though it was a two-game sample size, so smaller sample size there. But there was a lot of guys, even uh, Tucker Craft, for example, coming out of the FCS, um, did a, scored really well, but that level of competition there is a little bit lower, but has the size and, and good route running to be a nice later round target if he's still there. A lot of talk about the commanders with their number 16 overall pick potentially taking an offensive lineman. Uh, evaluating offensive linemen, of course, can be tricky. What stable metrics from Pro Football Focus do you use to evaluate offensive linemen? Yeah, so for the offensive line, it's it's basically focused on like true pass sets, um, how they look when they're actually step, stepping back to, to uh, protect against a, a pass rusher who doesn't have to do run, run reads first, uh, for example. Um, so the, yeah, basically the stable metrics in, uh, include um, true pass sets, uh, no play action, um, five to seven step uh, drop concepts for the quarterback, uh, and then run blocking as well, looking at how they run block uh, in, in zone schemes and in gap schemes as well. So all of that stuff is, is taken into account for the offensive line. Offensive linemen for the commanders at 16 who have come up include Tennessee offensive tackle Darnell Wright, uh, Georgia offensive tackle Broderick Jones, Ohio State offensive tackle Paris Johnson Jr., Northwestern offensive tackle Peter Skoronsky. Who out of the offensive linemen do you like for the commanders at 16? I mean, I, there's a couple guys that I like. Um, I think, you know, if the commander's looking at 16, there's there's a probably a good chance that, you know, Skaronsky, Darnell Wright, Paris Johnson, probably gone by then. I, I'm not sure exactly, just from what I've seen from mock drafts and stuff like that. But um, even somebody like Anton Harrison, I actually like probably a little bit more uh, than consensus, the guy out of Oklahoma. Um, he actually scored really well in our stable metrics um, over the past few years. So I think, you know, he's typically a consensus late first round pick. But for me, I, I wouldn't mind taking him in the, the middle first round. We are previewing the Commander's 2023 NFL Draft with Pro Football Focus's John Macri. Corner is such an interesting position because on the one hand, we know that corner matters a lot, pass happy NFL. But on the other hand, one of the lessons from PFF is that cornerback play is volatile and can fluctuate quite a bit. Is corner a particularly difficult position to evaluate via stable PFF metrics? It can be, absolutely, yeah, because especially with the PFF grades, like a lot of the times it, it can be production-based or the player has to be targeted um, to earn a grade, right? But we are starting to implement uh, more like all coverage uh, grading where we're looking at all players on the field and how they're doing. So right now, uh, the way it looks is essentially looking at how the corners perform when there's no pressure on the play, um, you know, three passes in three seconds or less, what they're doing in single coverage, things like that. So those are the main things that we're kind of looking at. um, And those stand out as kind of some of the the stable metrics. um, And and then how how they perform in which positions as well, wide corner or slot corner. um, We've noticed that those are are important and forced forced inter- 
uh, incompletion percentage. So it's not just pass breakups, but um, being the cause of an incompletion by tight coverage or, or force out or something like that. The consensus top two corners in the 2023 draft do appear to be Illinois' Devin Witherspoon and Oregon's Kristen Gonzalez, but there are other appealing corners in this draft. You think about Maryland's Deontay Banks, you think about Penn State's Joey Porter Jr., you think about Mississippi State's Emmanuel Forbes. Uh, Who should the commanders be thinking about? So, yeah, I'm going to assume Witherspoon and Gonzalez are likely gone by that point. Leaves Joey Porter, Deontay Banks, Emmanuel Forbes. You know what? I kind of like Deontay Banks getting the edge. I think he could fit nicely into that zone corner role, has a bit more experience playing quarters, which Washington did a lot last year. Um, So Porter, more of like the press corner guy, he he strived there. And and Banks did that as well, but not nearly as much. And it wasn't something that um, Rivera asked of his corners that much last season anyway. So uh, if the choice was there between the two, I'd probably go Banks, but it's close. I, I don't think I'd turn down either one if it was only one left. For years now, there has been conversation about Washington needing more at linebacker. Got to acquire a good linebacker. Got to be better at linebacker. And what's so funny about that conversation is that the team barely plays more than two linebackers at a time and plenty of times plays just one linebacker. Uh, The position clearly has been devalued big time in the modern NFL. Has linebacker become the defensive version of running back in terms of positional value and thus an NFL team should almost never spend a first round pick on a linebacker? No, I I mean, I think it makes sense. You look at the history of recent first round uh, linebacker picks and there's not a lot of hits. I mean, Roquan Smith was, but even Chicago didn't want to pay it want to pay him um for what he was asking so it's almost like you know even if the guy performs well you're still going to have to pay above market value and it's just not that valuable of a position and i actually really like the way washington employs their their um you know linebacker group with by using Cameron Curl in the box a ton. I think um, he does a fantastic job there being able to cover and carry tight ends up the seam, stuff like that, that a linebacker would struggle with. So um, as much as, you know, Washington, they spent the first round pick on Jamin Davis, he's still developing. But I think Cameron Curl, you know, using a, a bigger safety in that role makes a little bit more sense. We're seeing a little bit uh, teams do that a little bit more. Uh, Another reason that I wanted to have you on the podcast was a tweet that you put out a few months ago regarding Commander's interior defensive lineman, Deron Payne, uh, who the team in March signed to a mega money multi-year contract extension off his great 2022 season, which did come off him having been good, but also inconsistent over his first four NFL seasons, 2018 through 2021. Uh, you tweet out these really good player cards that feature a number of advanced stats. You, on February 28th, put out a card for Duran and wrote, quote, Duran Payne had a career year in terms of production with 11 and a half sacks this past season. He greatly outperformed his expected totals, more so than any other player at the defensive tackle position. Still a great option for IDP, but one to be mindful of for potential regression in 2023, and quote, so Deron Payne is a regression candidate for the 2023 season. Uh, take us through the extent to which Deron in the 2022 season outperformed his expected totals and what that might mean for him moving forward. Yeah, so essentially what it means is, you know, I, I try to come up with um, a model to predict, you know, uh, expected sack totals based on the player's performance on the field and, and compared to their peers and taking the averages and things like that. Um, so I did technically call uh, pain a regression candidate. So I'll, I'll try to, you know, choose my words a little bit more strategically here for the Washington fan base. Cause I, I don't mean it so much in that he's, you know, a bad player. I just mean that that sack total was very high. You know, he's coming off his first double digit sack season, 11 and a half contract year where his career average sack total has been about four per year. Um, so that's that's kind of the first thing that raises eyebrows, but it's not such an anomaly that it doesn't happen, especially for de- defensive linemen. It often takes them time to acclimate to the NFL, um, going head to head against bigger, stronger, and just overall better competition on every single snap. So I often preach patience when it comes to these high pedigree defensive linemen coming out of college, 
even somebody like Chase Young, for example, there isn't reason to hit a panic button just yet. But what will usually happen for those guys that do finally hit their stride in the NFL, as Payne seemingly did last year, is that their underlying pass rush metrics will also see a significant improvement. Things like pass rush win rates, pressure rate, pass rush grade, for example. That didn't really happen with Payne. Just looking at some of the raw numbers, those metrics actually slightly decreased, not by a lot, but they did go down. So, you know, how did he get 11 and a half sacks? Well, Part of it is he played a little bit more, but that doesn't explain it all the way. But most, you know, most, mostly for me, anyways, it's just sacks need a lot to go right for a player uh, to actually be able to bring down the quarterback, whether it's the quarterback holding onto the ball long enough or, or getting flushed into a pass rusher's lap or good coverage that buys the pass rush time, pass blocking lapses, among many other things. All that to say is that there's a decent amount of luck involved in these things as well. So we found it's just not one of those stable stats year to year um, without the increase in pass rush metrics to go along with it. So all again, all that to say as much as the sack numbers could come down, he's still a top tier defensive tackle. He does a great job rushing the passer. So his effectiveness in disrupting the quarterback could remain or even potentially increase as well as his pass rush metrics. But the sack numbers could still very well come down by ending up on the other side of variance when it comes to that sack luck that I mentioned. And that makes sense. But from what you're saying, it sounds like Deron Payne's underlying numbers for the 2022 season still were good. They just weren't as good as that sack total would suggest. Exactly. Yeah, they're still they're still very strong. Um, you know, he, he projects to still be a very good defensive tackle for a long time. Um, yeah, because the, the underlying pass rush metrics, they take more than just, you know, the 11 plays where he got a sack. They, they look at every single play and what he's doing on all of those pass rush reps. So um, for Deron Payne, it's still very positive. We just might not see double digit sacks again. I mean, even Chris Jones uh, only had that twice in his career so far. So Final question for you. As someone who has a great understanding of and command of advanced statistics in football, what is the next frontier for advanced stats in football, for pro football focus? Like, what can't we quantify or what can't we quantify well uh, on which you would like to see us have a better handle? Oh, man, that is a good question. (laughs) Um, I think, honestly, I really do feel like being able to... um, better quantify what uh, a corner or a coverage player is doing on every single play. I, you know, I, I slightly referenced it, but I think it's a big thing because people often uh, bring that up to us about, you know, what a player is doing when they're not targeted and how tight of coverage they have and erasing a wide receiver out of the play so that they're not an option. So being able to now bring that into the, into the, into the fold at some point in the next few years, I think would be a, a, a really, um, key aspect of, of analytics and, and finding the next, you know, great corners and things like that, because not all of them are, are targeted at, at a high rate, right? So. Very good point. John Macri, Pro Football Focus Fantasy Football Analyst, the host of the Big Nickel IDP podcast. John, thanks a lot and enjoy the draft. Thank you, Al. You too. Thank you for having me. All right, John Macri previewing the Commander's 2023 NFL Draft and talking Deron Payne in high IQ fashion. A great time of year if you're an NFL fan, and especially a great time of year if you are a Commander's fan with the sale of the team. And so now is a great time to advertise on the Al Galdi podcast. We'd love to have you uh, advertising your business or practice on the pod. will grow your business or practice and make you more money. Uh, podcast advertising is very affordable. You very much get a bang for your buck. And podcast advertising works. Email us, see what we can do for you. The email address is the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. All right, I did want to address the only actual significant commander's news that we had over the last few days, uh, the suspension of Shaka Tony. Uh, The NFL this past Friday morning announced the suspensions of five players for gambling policy violations. Among those players was commander's edge defender Shaka Tony, who, per the announcement, was, quote, suspended indefinitely through at least the conclusion of the 2023 season for betting on NFL games in the 2022 season. And quote, uh, the announcement did say that Tony could quote, petition for reinstatement at the conclusion of the 2023 season. 
end quote. The commanders on Friday morning issued a statement, quote, we have been made aware of the suspension of Shaka Tony. We have cooperated fully with the NFL's investigation since receiving notice and support the league's findings and actions. All further questions on this topic should be directed to the NFL league office, end quote. Uh, Washington took Shaka Tony in the seventh round of the 2021 NFL draft out of Penn State. He, over two seasons with Washington, has appeared in 26 regular season games, but on just 169 defensive snaps. Although Tony, for the 2022 regular season, was number three on the commanders in special team snaps. Uh, look, Shaka Tony, had he not been suspended, may not have even made the commander's initial 53-man roster for the 2023 season. He did not make the team's initial 53-man roster for the 2022 season. Uh, Tony, via the suspension, is set to lose his $940,000 salary for the 2023 season, uh, but his contract should toll to the 2025 season unless the commanders release him. Uh, I, over the last few days, saw a good amount of <laughs> some version of the take of it's hypocritical of the NFL to now have all of these gambling sponsors while also suspending players for gambling. And uh, here is my opinion of that take. Cuckoo! Cuckoo! Yes, uh, that is a cuckoo take, in my opinion. Um, there's nothing hypocritical about having sponsors for a certain something while also having certain rules against that something. That is allowed, okay? That can be a part of that thing that we call capitalism. Uh, the NFL makes millions of dollars every year in alcohol sponsorships and yet has rules against players uh, showing up at team facilities with cases of beer to drink, uh, say, after practices, you know? Um, you can't do that, right? Even though the NFL does make a lot of money off alcohol sponsorships. Personally, I have nothing against gambling. The NFL, like most other sports, uh, was way too slow to embrace gambling. Gambling is not some immoral behavior. It is a perfectly fine behavior, so long as you don't take the behavior too far. Uh, this is the case, of course, with many things in life, uh, like drinking alcohol. But here's the other thing. All of this sponsorship revenue that the NFL is generating via gambling uh, do you know who is reaping the benefits of that revenue in addition to the league and its owners? Wait for it. The players. <laughs> yes, the player players. NFL players via the current collective bargaining agreement get 48% of league revenue. 48%. The more revenue that the league generates, the more money that the players get. So to those in the media pontificating about the hypocrisy of the NFL in having gambling sponsors while also suspending players for gambling, well, if you don't want the NFL to have gambling sponsors, you are taking money away from players. And we know that a lot of people in the media are pro players. The NFL's gambling policy isn't complicated. All betting on NFL games is prohibited for NFL personnel with no excuses, the policy states that, quote, all NFL personnel are prohibited from placing, soliciting, or facilitating any bet, whether directly or indirectly, through a third party on any NFL game, practice, or other event. This includes betting on game outcome, statistics, score, performance of any individual participant, or any other kind of proposition bet on which wagering is offered, end quote. Uh, that is a pretty straightforward policy. That's a policy that the NFL absolutely has to have. You can't have NFL executives, coaches, or players betting on NFL games, okay? The optics of that would be terrible. Uh, so look, if you are an NFL player and you absolutely have to bet on the NFL, you can't live without betting on the NFL, then don't play in the NFL, okay? Nobody's forcing you to be an NFL player. Otherwise, follow the policy and reap the benefits of the financial windfall that has been created by the NFL finally waking up and embracing gambling. Do as the great Snoop Dogg has told us to do. Make money, money. Make money, money, make money, money, money. Exactly. Thank you, Snoop. Well, a rough last few days for our guy Shaka Tony, but here's some good news for him and more importantly for you. Great sunglasses from Shady Rays at a greatly discounted price are waiting for you. 
Shady Rays, for listeners of this podcast, is offering a great deal. 50% off two or more pairs of polarized sunglasses at ShadyRays.com. Go to ShadyRays.com and use the promo code ALGALDI. Shady Rays sunglasses. They look good. They feel good. Shady Rays is an independent sunglasses company that offers a world-class product that's affordable and durable with clear optics for whatever you're doing outside. And Shady Rays offers the most insane protection in all of eyewear. Every pair of sunglasses is backed by lost and broken replacements, meaning that if you lose or break your pair of sunglasses, even on day one, Shady Rays will send you a brand new pair of sunglasses no questions asked. Wear your Shady Rays with confidence because Shady Rays has your back long after your purchase. Here's a special offer for listeners of the Al Galdi podcast. Go to ShadyRays.com and use the code Al Galdi for 50% off two or more pairs of polarized sunglasses. Yeah, 50% off two or more pairs of polarized sunglasses. If you don't love them, you can exchange them for sunglasses that you do love, or you can return your sunglasses for a full refund within 30 days. There's no risk when you shop with Shady Rays. Shady Rays always has your back. Go to ShadyRays.com and use the code ALGALDI for 50% off two or more pairs of polarized sunglasses. If you have been thinking about getting new sunglasses, now is the time. And Shady Rays is the way. Try for yourself the shades rated five stars by over 200,000 people. That's ShadyRays.com and use the code ALGALDI for 50% off two or more pairs of polarized sunglasses. Also, Shady Rays has done some great work, has donated over 20 million meals to fight hunger with Feeding America. Shady Rays, look good and feel good. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring this podcast. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System, you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. At hundreds of locations across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE system technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unifydhealing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. Well, it still has not happened since August 2021. It is the Nationals sweeping a series. The Nats have not authored a sweep of a series, any series, since August 2021. Uh, The Nats on August 17th and 18th, 2021, swept a two-game series against the Toronto Blue Jays at Nationals Park. That series sweep remains the last Nationals sweep of a series. Uh, The Nats haven't swept a three-game series since June 2021 and haven't swept a road series of at least three games since August 2019, if you can believe that. However, the Nats over the weekend did win a series. Uh, What was their first series win of the 2023 season? Uh, The Nats over the weekend won two or three games at the Minnesota Twins. Friday night, a 3-2 win as the Nats overcame a 2-0 seventh inning deficit in what was the coldest Nats regular season game since the franchise moved to Washington, D.C. in the 2004-2005 offseason. Your game time temperature for Friday night, a mere 37 degrees, but that record ended up standing for just one day as on Saturday afternoon, we had a 10-4 Nats win in a game for which the game time temperature was a mere 35 degrees. Uh, Target Field in Minneapolis, Minnesota, inexplicably does not have a retractable roof. So when it's cold in Minneapolis and the Twins have a home game and the uh, weather is deemed acceptable, 
Uh, you play in the cold, and you suffer in the cold. But the Nats did win in the cold on Friday night and Saturday afternoon. Uh, but then on Sunday afternoon, when the weather was a bit warmer, by the way, game time temperature of 40 degrees, uh, the Nats did lose. 3-1. Go figure. Uh, so the Nats now are 7-14. and Their biggest problem so far this season, their offense, uh, was not good in games one and three in the series, though. The Nats offense was good in that 10-4 win on Saturday afternoon. The Nats in that game, 10 runs, 15 hits, five walks. Uh, Nats manager Davey Martinez did tinker with his lineup. He finally has moved first baseman Dominic Smith out of the number two spot. Smith was killing the Nats in that spot. The number two spot is where your best batter should hit, and Dominic Smith has been arguably the Nats' worst batter. Uh, he ended up being the Nats' number six batter at all three games in the series. He was the Nats' starting first baseman in games one and three and was the team starting DH in game two. Uh, Dominic Smith in the series went three for 11 with three singles and a walk, but he is having a really rough season. Dominic Smith now in this regular season has an OPS of just 558. His slugging percentage is the same as his batting average, 233. He has yet to register an extra base hit. Uh, the Nats' overall offensive output this season continues to not be good. Uh, the Nats, for this regular season, have a team OPS of just 653 and are dead last in the majors in home runs with 10. However, we in this series win for the Nats did have two Nats each hit a home run for the first time this regular season. Uh, these were two guys who desperately needed to hit home runs, and these two guys finally did homer. Uh, talking about Joey Manessis and C.J. Abrams. Uh, Friday night, Joey Manessis as an at starting DH and number four batter, one for four with a solo homer. Uh, he had an at one run seventh, hit a one-out solo homer to left center field to cut the Nats' deficit to 2-1. Uh, the homer winner projected 409 feet per stand cast, was his first home run of this regular season, and marked the Nats' first run in three games. Remember, they got shut out in back-to-back games against the Orioles at Nationals Park this past Tuesday night and Wednesday night. Uh, and then Manessis on Saturday afternoon had a big game. He is an Nats' starting first baseman at number three batter, four for six with a double an RBI single, and two other singles. Uh, C.J. Abrams, he was an ad starting shortstop at all three games in the series, during which he only had three hits, including, by the way, <laughs> one of the weakest doubles that you'll ever see. Abrams on Friday night as the Nats' number nine batter, one for three with a double. He had an Nats' two-run eighth, had a two-out opposite field double on a weekly hit ball that went by Twins' third baseman, Jose Miranda, and into left field. The hit per stat cast had an expected batting average of 150, and yet the hit ended up being a double. Uh, but Abrams on Saturday afternoon as the Nats' number eight batter, one for five, but the one was a three-run homer, and he made a really nice defensive play. Abrams in an Nats three-run seventh, a one-out three-run homer to right field for an 8-2 Nats lead. The homer was Abrams' first home run of this regular season, his first regular season home run as a Nat, and just his third home run over 109 Major League regular season games. He's not hit for much power so far at the Major League level. Uh, but Abrams in the bottom of the ninth on Saturday afternoon, a great over-the-shoulder catch of a pop-up by pinch hitter Donovan Solano for the first out. Abrams in making the catch actually ended up all the way in shallow center field. Really good stuff there from C.J. Abrams in making that play. Uh, another Nats position player worth highlighting is Victor Robles. Uh, he in this series was the Nats starting center fielder in all three games. And we in this series saw the best of Victor Robles and the worst of Victor Robles. Uh, Friday night, Robles was the Nats number eight batter. He went one for three with a single. He in the top of the third had a one out single to left center field. Uh, this single was his first non-bunt single since he had two non-bunt singles in the Nats 6-4 win at the Los Angeles Angels on April 10th. Uh, yeah, we went nearly a week and a half without Victor Robles notching a non-bunt single. And uh, the word bunt will come back into play shortly. Uh, but Saturday afternoon, Robles did have a good game. He is an Nats number nine batter, went two for four with a triple, an RBI double, and a hit by pitch. And then on Sunday afternoon, uh, Robles as the Nats number nine batter, 0 for three, but he did have a great assist. Uh, now, Regarding the 0 for 3, Robles in the top of the fifth bunted into a 2-6-3 double play for the first two outs of the inning. This was a killer. And Robles did this on the first 
pitch of his plate appearance. Uh, Robles' bunt moved like a matter of inches, and then he didn't run hard to first base, thinking that the ball might be foul. Uh, I can't stand how often Victor Robles is bunting here these days. He is bunting a ton. Bunting is not the way to go with all that we know about the value of bunting in 2023. And, you know, with Robles bunting as often as he is, it's hard to know how much of this is him versus how much of this is Davey Martinez. But we do know this, what was on display on Sunday afternoon, that bunt, uh, that was the call of Davey Martinez. Take a listen to this. Davey during his post-game session with reporters on Sunday, and then you'll hear a follow-up exchange with my co-host on the That Chat podcast. That's insider Mark Zuckerman of MassInSports.com. I mean, in that situation, you bunt the ball, you got to run. You got to hear the umpire call foul ball. You can't can't assume it's a foul ball. He's got he just got to run. You know, I, you know, I, I don't know how many times I got to tell him. You know, he, he's not an umpire. You know, he's got to run hard at first base. It's kind of been the standard for him in those situations to bunt, um, even early in a game and in a one-run game like that. Why do you feel like that is the right uh, call and not just let him swing away and try to go for a bigger inning? Uh, you know, look, Victor struggles on sliders. We all know that. So, I mean, I think right there, at a point in time, we can get him to second base, you know, and uh, give Alex a shot to drive him in. You know, if, I mean, he could, bu- I mean, if he bunts the ball well, he could bunt for a base hit as well. So, in that situation right there, you know, we're trying to play, try to get get him run, get back in the game. Um See if we get something started that way, and it just didn't happen. No, it did not. And had you like Davey Martinez point blank saying, Victor Robles is bad against sliders. <laughs> I mean, that was something. Blunt honesty from Davey on Victor. Uh, so Victor Robles' bunt on Sunday afternoon was bad. I really would like for Davey Martinez to stop having Victor Robles bunt so often. But let me say this about Robles. His outfield assist on Sunday afternoon was awesome. Uh, Robles in the bottom of the eighth, an amazing throw for an outfield assist. Uh, he right on the border of the outfield grass in the warning track, caught a first pitch deep fly ball off the bat of ex-nat Michael A. Taylor and then unleashed a monster no-hop throw to first baseman Dominic Smith for an inning-ending 8-3 double play. Uh, Now, let's also credit Nat second baseman Luis Garcia. He engineered a great deke on the runner on first, Willie Castro, who had been attempting to steal second and didn't know where the ball was. Castro ended up sliding into second and then finally realized where the ball was and then had to run back to first, but he ended up getting doubled up thanks to that outstanding throw by Victor Robles. So like I said, we in this series saw the best of Victor Robles and the worst of Victor Robles. You know, he for this regular season does have an on-base percentage of 371. Now, he also has a slugging percentage of 371. He's not hitting for much power, but nobody on the Nats is hitting for much power. And a 371 on base is good. Also good for the Nats in this series win at the Twins was starting pitcher Trevor Williams. Uh, he and that 3-2 win on Friday night allowed two runs in six innings. He gave up just four hits, although three of them were extra base hits, a homer, two doubles, and a single, although one of the doubles came on a very catchable fly ball that inexcusably landed between center fielder Victor Robles and right fielder Lane Thomas due to an apparent miscommunication between those two. Uh, like I said, we in this series saw the best and the worst of Robles, but you know there have been a few miscommunications between Robles and Thomas so far in the outfield. But Trevor Williams issued just one walk. He recorded four strikeouts and he threw a lot of strikes, 93 pitches, 60 strikes versus 33 balls. Trevor Williams now in this regular season, four starts, an ERA of 338. That's quite nice. Uh, Chad Cool continues to not be so nice. So he was the Nats starting pitcher for the 10-4 win on Saturday afternoon. He lasted for just three and two-thirds innings. Now, he only allowed one run, which came in the bottom of the third on a leadoff homer by Byron Buxton to left field to cut the Nats' lead to 4-1. Uh, and Cool only gave up three hits, the homer a double and a single. But he also issued four walks and a wild pitch. He did generate five strikeouts, but the walks and the strikeouts drove up his pitch count to where he, over his mere three and two-thirds innings, threw a staggering 96 pitches, just 49 strikes versus 47 balls, a near one-to-one strikes-to-balls ratio. That's not the way that that's supposed to go. Uh, Chad Cool. In this regular season, four starts, an ERA of 736. And then 
Patrick Corbin was an ad-starting pitcher for their 3-1 loss on Sunday afternoon, and he, to me, had his best start so far this season. Now, the bar with Corbin has become rather low, but Corbin on Sunday afternoon, three runs in six innings. He gave up seven hits, two solo homers, and five singles. He issued two walks, but he also had six strikeouts, and he threw a lot of strikes, 96 pitches, 63 strikes versus 33 balls. Uh, Corbin in the bottom of the fourth allowed two runs on two solo homers, a leadoff homer by Jorge Polanco to left field and a two-out first pitch homer by the ex that Michael A. Taylor on a bomb to center field. Uh, Taylor's homer went a projected 444 feet per stat cast. Uh, and then Corbin in the bottom of the fifth allowed a run on a walk and two singles. Uh, good series for the Nats bullpen. Uh, Nats relievers in this series combined to allow just three runs, two earned in 10 and a third innings. Uh, the 3-2 win on Friday night did come with some scares. Uh, reliever Hunter Harvey tossed a perfect bottom of the eighth with three strikeouts, but one of the Twins batters in that inning, Max Kepler, just barely missed a game-tying solo home run on a foul ball to right field. And then closer Kyle Finnegan, he did toss a scoreless spot of the ninth for the save, but he began his appearance by giving up a leadoff single to Byron Buxton into left field to conclude a 10-pitch plate appearance and then issued a six-pitch walk of Trevor Larnick. But Finnegan then recorded three outs over two batters, including inducing a game-ending 5-4-3 double play on a first-pitch grounder by Jose Miranda. And also in the series was another terrific outing from Mason Thompson. He and the 10-4 win on Saturday afternoon allowed one run, which was unearned in two and a third innings with four strikeouts. He gave up just two hits, both of which were singles. Uh, Thompson threw 35 pitches, 27 strikes versus eight balls. Uh, Mason Thompson now in this regular season, nine appearances, 15 and two-thirds innings, an ERA of 115, a whip of 0.64. He has been great. Uh, no game for the Nats on Monday. What is their last scheduled off day until May 11th? So these next few weeks may well be a challenge for the Nats, especially with them leaning on their bullpen so much. But next up for the Nats, a three-game series at the New York Mets. Game one, Tuesday night at 7-10, Josiah Gray will be the Nats starting pitcher. Game two, Wednesday night at 7-10, Mackenzie Gore will be the Nats starting pitcher. And game three, Thursday night at 7-10, Trevor Williams will be the Nats starting pitcher. Well, the Orioles have gone from hitting really well, but getting really bad starting pitching, to now not hitting so well, but getting really good starting pitching. Uh, But the bottom line is that the O's are winning. They now have won six consecutive games and are 14-7, and a three-game sweep of the Detroit Tigers at Oriole Park at Camden Yards over the weekend. Friday night, a 2-1 walk-off win. Saturday night, a 5-1 win. And Sunday afternoon a 2-1, 10-inning walk-off win as the O's, Joe Angel, again, were in the win column. And the Orioles, again, in the win column. You are correct, Joe. The win column. Uh, the O's are tied for the second-best record in the American League at 14-7. and seven. And yeah, this three-game sweep of the Tigers was something. The O's swept the series despite totaling just 16 hits the entire series. Although one of the hits was a big clutch hit on Sunday afternoon. Anthony Santander ended Orioles one-run eighth, a pinch, two-out, game-tying RBI double down the left field line on an 0-2 pitch. And scoring on the play was the returning Jorge Mateo. He was back from a two-game absence caused by right hip discomfort. Uh, Mateo is the Orioles starting shortstop and number six batter, one for three with an infield single. But yeah, 16 hits for the O's the entire series, and yet they swept the series. Why? How? Pitching. The Orioles' pitching was outstanding. Uh, Tyler Wells was great in game one. Wells in the 2-1 walk-off win on Friday night, seven scoreless innings. He had five strikeouts, versus one walk. He gave up just three hits, all of which were singles. He threw 95 pitches, 61 strikes, versus 34 balls. Then came Kyle Gibson, who was good for the third time at four starts. Gibson in the 5-1 win on Saturday night. One run in six into third innings with 11 strikeouts. Yeah, 11 strikeouts. That tied his career high for most strikeouts in a major league regular season game. Gibson gave up just two hits, a solo homer and a single. He issued three walks. He threw 96 pitches, 59 strikes 
versus 37 balls. And then came Grayrod, Grayson Rodriguez, who per MLB Pipeline is the number five prospect in baseball and the number two pitching prospect in baseball. Uh, Grayrod in the 2-1-10 inning walk-off win on Sunday afternoon, five scoreless innings with six strikeouts. So he gave up five hits, a double and four singles. He did issue three walks. He threw 92 pitches, 58 strikes versus 34 balls. Here was O's manager Brandon Hyde during his postgame press conference on Sunday afternoon on Grayson Rodriguez. I thought Grayson battled without his best stuff, honestly, and um, had a tough time for me finding his off-speed stuff early. But his fifth inning was his best inning by far from a stuff standpoint and command standpoint. Um, but he, he competed. Uh, I thought we played really well defensively behind him. Uh, McKenna makes a huge catch for us in right field there. Uh, but but uh, go five scoreless without your best stuff is pretty good. Yes, it is. Uh, the Orioles starting pitching had been horrendous. <laughs> the Orioles starting pitching ERA over the team's first 16 games of this regular season, it was a putrid 6.75, but the Orioles starting pitching over the two-game sweep at the Nationals last Tuesday night and Wednesday night, and now this three-game sweep of the Detroit Tigers at Oriole Park at Camden Yards over the weekend. Superb. Uh, also, the Orioles' bullpen in the three-game sweep of the Tigers was good. Orioles' relievers in the series combined to allow two runs in nine and two-thirds innings with 13 strikeouts. Now, closer Felix Batista did have a hiccup in the 2-1 walk-off win on Friday night. He blew his second save chance in seven save opportunities in this regular season. He, in the top of the ninth, allowed a run on two singles. But how about reliever Yanir Cano? The Cano Show continues. Seeing the 5-1 win on Saturday night, one and two-thirds perfect innings with three strikeouts. Cano now has retired all 17 batters he has faced since the O's on April 14th recalled Cano from AAA Norfolk. The O's got Cano from the Minnesota Twins in the trade of closer Jorge Lopez to the Twins on MLB trade deadline day last August 2nd. Uh, what a job Yanir Cano is doing for the O's. Uh, and then in the 2-1-10 inning walk-off win on Sunday afternoon, six Orioles relievers combined to allow one run in five innings with six strikeouts. Felix Batista, a perfect top of the ninth with two strikeouts. And Keegan Aiken, a scoreless top of the 10th, despite issuing two intentional walks. Next up for the O's, a three-game series against the Boston Red Sox at Oriole Park at Camden Yards. Game one, Monday evening at 6.35. Dean Kramer will be the Orioles' starting pitcher. Game two, Tuesday evening at 6.35. Kyle Bradish will be the Orioles' starting pitcher. And game three, Wednesday afternoon at 1.05. Tyler Wells will be the Orioles' starting pitcher. And that will do it for you and me for now. Keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Tuesday show, episode 557. We'll have plenty for you on the Commanders. Also, I'll talk Orioles. The O's on Monday evening at 635 of game one of a three-game series against the Boston Red Sox at Oriole Park at Camden Yards. So have a great rest of your Monday, and I'll talk to you on Tuesday. Make money, money, make money, money, money.